Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira, and today it's just me and Brenda here. The historians are taking over the show. Bum, 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 bum. I don't know. That was like our entrance music. We're very excited about this. Uh, We have a good show for you today uh, with the start of the 2021-2022 global football campaigns in various leagues. We have been thinking a lot about global football or soccer. On the show today, Brenda and I are going to be taking a closer look at youth academies, those systems that take kids at fairly young ages and put them on a pathway to the Premier League or to Bundesliga or to various professional sporting ventures. Um, And they're kind of this like weird shadowy thing that is there, but we don't know a lot about. So We're going to dive into it. It's not very pretty. I'll give you a fair warning. And then, of course, we're going to be burning some things. Uh, And then we'll get some lighthearted torchbearers in. I'm really excited. But first, with Premier League being back in action, it's very exciting. Waking up very early now in Central Time to watch Manchester United. But with a new season also comes new chance. And I love, love, love. United's new chant for Edison Cavani. I've been blowing up Brenda about this. And then I wanted to ask her what her all-time favorite football chant was. Now, to answer this question, of course, I felt like many people might immediately go to the chants from Ted Lasso because they are certified bops. I mean, Roy Kent, he's here, he's there, he's every fucking where, Roy Kent. Roy Kent. And like, I even don't mind Jamie Tart's chant because Baby Shark is so annoying. But somehow when you're saying Jamie Tart, do, 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 is not as annoying. But outside of the world of fictional football, there are some bangers as well. So Brenda, what is your go-to favorite football chant? Just to stay on brand, it's, you know, political. Um, Mauricio (laughs) Macri, who was the terrible neoliberal president of Argentina recently, he started his career as president of Boca Juniors, one of their big clubs. And so in 2018, when San Lorenzo played Boca, they basically had this chant that was like, This is the nicest translation, but um, what is the worst thing that your whore of a mother produced? Mauricio Macri, Mauricio Macri. So they were like taunting Boca to say your club has given us this terrible president. The issue is that Macri is totally unpopular in Boca too. So it became every football club singing it to each other. Macri threatened to shut down the stadiums. And stop games. It became like the whole on the streets protest of 2018, 2019 in Argentina. And he was summarily dismissed from, you know, office. Like he he was so unpopular and they voted in a totally new political party. So it's pretty awesome. You can just hear the like fun rage. And of course, there's a long history to it. The song goes back for generations. I love it. It's a bop. (laughs) It's a bop. Now, here's the fun thing about chanting is like, for those who don't know, I'm completely tone deaf, very tone deaf. But there's something about the heartiness of a collective chant. I love them. Like, 
always been my weak spot. My favorite thing about summer camp was like the chants and the songs. My favorite thing about softball was the chants as well. We had like our, and even soccer, when I played at the youth level, like it was like, you know, B-E-A-T, beat him, beat him, beat like Like all of the chants, I just like love it. And I feel like it sometimes disguises that I'm tone deaf. Maybe not so much. Maybe it's just like all in my head. But that's the other reason I love it is the collective chanting. So as I said, my favorite chant at this moment is the new chant for Cavani. And I don't know why I like it so much. Um, maybe because it's like a complete banger. But also, um, like he was so happy when he heard it the first time. Yeah, it was so cute. And that always makes me happy. Like that acknowledgement, right? Like that feeling of like, hell yeah, mm-hmm. that's my mm-hmm. chant. That's my chant. I love it. In love, I can't deny. Number seven is the king of her El Matador, who could it be? His second Cavani. I love it. It's good stuff. I love it. It is. It's great. It's good. And as Brenda pointed out, which is surprising because you're usually European chants are good. (laughs) (laughs) They're usually so bad. Um, You know, you go to like South America and people are like, they never sit down. And it's like, no, there's a whole drum section. There's the whole batteria. So, like, the chants just don't feel as... But this one, I feel like this has a certain swagger. Okay, before we leave this, I do have to shout out Austin FC, who, uh, as y'all know, are in their inaugural season here in Austin. Jessica and I were at Q2 when they opened, and Jess has been to a few games. The atmosphere is amazing. And part of that reason is for what Brenda just mentioned is you have a drumming section. You have fans who never leave their feet. It's it's a, a really, really incredible sight, especially in the MLS to see, but they also, um, as a new team, it's been very interesting to see how they're engaging with local musicians and coming up with chants and having uh, Los Verdes and other supporters clubs helping people learn it. So that's like my other answer to my favorite chance, the Austin FC and the way that they're, they're uh, pulling, you know, people into a kind of soccer community here. Uh, my favorite is Dale, 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 ATX. And so like, and it keeps going. <laughs> I want to talk about youth academies. Now, I first started thinking about this, like most things, when I was watching Ted Lasso. And I was watching a character on Ted Lasso talk about entering into a youth system when he was nine and how, you know, it got him from a shit neighborhood and his grandfather sent him off with a blanket. And it was kind of like in jest. But one of the things he kind of muttered offhand is that he never saw his grandfather again, right? Because he was in this academy system now. And it was quick. It was a quick moment in the show. But it got me thinking about how young people enter these systems. And of course, I called up Dr. Elsie um, to, to pick her brain about these Um, youth academies. And we have seen these emerge in other sports. Certainly, we know in the Dominican Republic, baseball youth academies are huge. Shout out to recent Burn It All Down guest, Dr. Javier Wallace, who has also done work on this in in, uh, Panama on basketball. But global football seems to be the leader in many ways, the model of these youth systems. So I wanted to start by asking Brenda, 
to just talk to me a little bit more about what these youth academies look like. So what a youth academy is, is a euphemism for a dormitory, basically, where young players, minors live so that they can train and develop into professionals full time. And because they violate every labor law of every country in which they exist, they're not really open (laughs) about what they do very often. And so they start sometime in the 1950s, and it's kind of piecemeal, right? You've got these clubs that form and get quite large in the capital cities of South America in particular, Rio, Sao Paulo, uh, Buenos Aires, um, Montevideo. And then you have provincial talent, especially because Brazil is so large. It really, really, I look at Brazil as, as the central place for this. They have to have a place to live. You know, how are they going to train in the club? They don't have fancy families that can just relocate or are willing to relocate. Um, And so they start out sometimes just as like, oh, there's this family that's willing to take in people. And women's teams still do this, right? Just do you have housing? And it grows into this kind of system where now we have, you know, dormitories with hundreds of boys and sometimes girls depending and they live there through their through their years and sometimes they go you know as young as as pre-adolescence and then sometimes um they arrive by like 12 13 um and they're supposedly going to school but um question mark on that in a lot of cases right This is one of the reasons why it all kind of seems very vague and kind of secret and that we have a kind of loose sense of it because it kind of feels like youth academy is just football speak for like sweatshop or child labor. I mean, like it's it's kind of wild once you start peeling back, right, the layers of this. And so has there been, you know, attempts to regulate or reform? Like, how is it still a thing? (laughs) I mean, it's part of it is because starting in the 1920s, you have what's called the transfer system. And the transfer system means that players need to get permission from every level up to FIFA to be transferred over country lines. Okay, so this is it's going to at first be like you're going to be in the woods with me in a minute for a minute and you're going to be like, how do those things connect? And this is this is sort of how it connects. So there's attempts to do things like reform and say, okay, we're not going to let players start until they're 17, um, or we're not going to let them start until they're 16. But every federation is going to jockey to be able to set those rules because what happens is once you have the transfer certificate that's necessary, you get a fee. Now, for example... Messi couldn't leave Barcelona because there was an $850 million, we did an episode on this, fee just for the transfer. He doesn't get it. The club gets it. And then all the clubs he played for before he was 21 get a piece of that transfer fee. So that means even today, if you trade Neymar, Santos in Brazil, who runs that youth academy, get a piece of that pie. And that... That therein lies the kind of um, incentive that you have both to keep the academies going because those federations get a piece of that pie, not just the academy. Then the country of Brazil, the the football federation of Brazil gets a piece of that. Guess who else gets a piece of that? FIFA gets a piece of that because it's so hard to 
draw up that transfer certificate. It must just be impossible. So these are all the ways in which it gets real wild and it is an incentive for federations to keep pushing for them to exist, for FIFA to keep allowing it, and then for those clubs. And the idea is the clubs will make this argument. We developed those players. We deserve a piece of the pie for training them. We shouldn't just be a drain to Europe. So there's a weird anti-imperialist argument that somehow gets spun around to make it not, you know, feel unclear what the right thing to do is. Right. Now, we, of course, love nuance and mess. So I think it's important to acknowledge that certainly for some players, right, these systems have been very beneficial in a path of upward mobility. Of course, um, I immediately think of Marcus Rashford, who joined the Manchester United Academy system at seven. And when he was starting his uh, anti-poverty and, and hunger campaign, um, one of the things that he recalled was that him and his mom really pushed him to move up within the academy system to the United Schoolboy Scholar program, which usually is something that you can qualify for when you're 12. And they had him do it a year early when he was 11. Because once you get into that level of the academy, you move closer to the training facilities and you get meals. And one of the things that he reflected on was that his mother pushed him and worked with United, who were, because of his talent, more than willing to bend the rules and let him come earlier to that program. And the benefit for the Rashford family was that he knew that it would help his family out because they wouldn't have to worry about feeding him and he would have a full belly. And then, of course, you still see him playing with Manchester United now. Um, And that is the kind of best case scenario, right, for, for this system, except it very rarely works. Something like 0.02% roughly of young kids within these systems make it to the first team, make it to the level that Rashford's at. And, you know, you hear the chants, you hear the way that there's immense pride, especially around United, for the fact that he's a born and bred Manchester United player. He came up through the system. He was there since he was seven. There's a lot of rhetoric and narrative around that. And I keep thinking seven. Like seven. Oh, yeah. Like my kid is eight. He likes Minecraft. Last mm. year he liked Roblox. <laughs> Zachary liked dinosaurs. Now he likes Avengers. Like 11, yeah. right? Like when we talk about athletic labor, it can be hard to define athletic labor and see it. But when I think of it broadly, this is the type of thing I'm thinking about. Like knowing full and well as you're participating in the schoolboy scholars at 11, that your performance there guarantees that you're well fed in your house and takes a burden off your family for that, then that's a knowledge that goes into every touch of the ball. That's a knowledge that you know your performance, your labor is directly tied to your ability to generate food for yourself and lift the burden from your family. And that is a lot to to shoulder at 11 in a system that continues to reward you and acts like it's benevolent in in doing so. And even the Cinderella cases here kind of feel less shiny to me. And Brenda, like, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but like it's a lot of these academies can also be places of immense harm with no accountability and very little regulation. Yeah, think about the fact that, you know, Brazil is pumping out 800 players a year from its development academies abroad, you know, where they'll leave. So, you know, they're displaced from their hometowns, from their countries. Sometimes they're very, very far from their parents. I mean, also like Cinderella story, think about Pelé, right? He was he was pushed up to the senior men's team at 14, Messi um, couldn't because of regulations, but they certainly would have loved to trot him out there. And, you know, there's something inherent to the sport, too, where you develop in football differently than you do in baseball, right? Like a pitcher's arm doesn't really come to fruition at 16. Like we, we just haven't seen throwing 101 miles an hour that can just go anywhere, you know, at that age. So the sport itself is sort of dangerous that way. And there's an incentive to scoop up this talent cheaply as quickly as you can. And they remain, yeah, very, very shrouded in mystery. And so, you know, the fact that they're called academies, ugh, we've already mentioned that, but it grosses me out. Um, the the implication that they're going to get school and things. And we've had, you know, two major sexual abuse cases. And it's not just in South America. Um, England had this huge series of cases where people were, I think they like totaled into the hundreds of cases of boys that reported various clubs um, for this. The same in Argentina, they had a trafficking, uh, a sex trafficking ring with minors that was discovered at Independiente. And um, one person did go to jail for grooming, trafficking, and assaulting boys, but tons of people complicit in that. It becomes very hard. Who are you going to hold accountable? You know, are you going to hold accountable um, a vice president of the club that may have just looked the other way? It's, it's you know, we know this from other types of sports and, and how this happens, and we've covered gymnastics and NASA. You look at these institutions, and they're much more powerful than USA Gymnastics. And so it's hard to, to crack these cases. River had another well-known case of trafficking, and it didn't bring real reform to these clubs. You didn't see somebody need to overhaul, like the Commissioner of Human Rights of Argentina or Gender Equity should have been all over this. And yet, I think even they have a hard time sorting it out because these people have really, you know, strong lawyers and systems in place to keep you from knowing and and it's been really hard to to get to get to the bottom of it. Hmm. So you've young kids performing athletic labor, churning out players into a labor market, and also in places where they're vulnerable to racist abuse, sexual exploitation, and trafficking. And on top of that, you also have other unexpected tragedies, right? Most notable a fire at an academy in Brazil. The fire is reported to have killed 10 people and injured three more at the training ground of one of Brazil's most successful football clubs, Flamengo. The fire broke out at the Nino do Urubu facility in Rio de Janeiro in a building which houses the club's youth team players. Oh, that, that was just terrible. And you hope that that is going to do something, shake something up. And certainly for a while, it looked like it, it might. 
So what happened is in 2019, in the Club Flamengo, 10 teenage boys died. And this is, you know, one of the richest club academies in the world. It tends to take provincial, poor Afro-Brazilian players, by and large. Um, Flamengo is in Rio. And they were, you know, either in full training or undergoing trials and they were staying in ship containers. And I know there's some sort of hipster, small, tiny house shows about that that make that look like it might be cute, but it really fucking isn't in this case. And the pictures were horrific. And there was a makeshift because I don't know if you remember, but Rio's pretty hot. And there was a makeshift kind of air conditioner that had that started an electrical fire and there wasn't proper um exit from these ship containers and they died from asphyxiation it's just a horrible terrible tragedy it it was all over the news there was you know of course like the parents grieving and um all of these pictures and then the brazilian team many of the national players come from these academies both santos flamengo fluminense and they would like dedicate their wins that year to these boys and so many of the players themselves expressed profound solidarity and grief at the end nothing happened nothing was reformed people did not go to jail for this it's like half like I mean mean, it's also Bolsonaro's Brazil so there's larger issues at play which is Bolsonaro you know was able to also kill you know the um queer city councilwoman Marielle without retribution too it's a culture of impunity right now and that really makes it thrive um in this way and you do see a lot of top flight professional players that did try to call attention or use it as an example, but they're playing outside of Brazil. Right. So it's not like they have all this power within Brazil to do much about it. And they are the winners. They are the people who made it out. They're the 0.02%. This is what's so hard, right? Because we're talking about the experiences of like the 99 point blah, blah, blah in these systems, which are exploitative and, and harmful. And I'm sure... There are friendships and joys and and things mm-hmm. like that. But then when we even focus on those 0.02%, right? When we focus on the Rashfords, I can't stop thinking about, great, he's on first team and he's just subject to uh, re- him and Sancho like, to ridiculous chance, right? About their missed penalties and the racist abuse that they got after that. And it reminds me... One of the things you taught me about, for instance, was Malcolm, who is a Brazilian footballer who, you know, came up in in the youth club in, of Corinthians and, and went into the transfer market, as you said. Um, and he had, you know, two years ago, just like, what, 24 hours, 48 hours, something like that, few days after, after moving to um, Zenit St. Petersburg, the Russian club, was met there with banners during his debut that were basically racist telling him to go away and and saying that they must uphold the tradition to have no black players there. And I'm thinking about like, even that, right? Like even quote unquote making it and making it out, that's what you're making it to. It's like, we've talked about the harm at the highest level. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's sometimes what is like, 
hard or but like also very necessary about talking about like youth systems and and you know we we have said we want to start talking about youth sports more in a variety of ways but when we know that there's so much corruption and abuse and and all these things at the highest levels of course it's gonna be there (laughs) within these institutions at the lower levels as well and so that even when you're climbing even when you're that golden child even when you've made it what did you make it to? And and does making it justify, you know, racial abuse? So this happens all the time. Like Malcolm, Malcolm's getting millions of dollars, you know? So none of this takes away like the pain and the harm that's being done. And, you know, there's just, that's one area. So we're talking about this and it's like, yeah, depressing, depressing, depressing. But historians are... um like this because we're actually secret optimists because we think that somebody's going to listen and somebody's going to figure it out and people are going to want to change things and they do they do um you know the fact that the that the three you know step protocol is in place for racist abuse i can tell you right now just in my time as fair it has worked to a certain extent it's 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 not worked as fast as it should or as good as it should but it does work um the russian clubs have been punished for, you know, had to play for no fans and closed stadiums and fines. And it's not enough, but they don't love it. It definitely, like, puts a little bee in one's bonnet. It may not be, you know, the sledgehammer that we want to racism. Um, we see it in the Italian leagues all the time. And so, you know, you you still want to shout from the rafters, you know, these are children. So they're walking onto a field like they're still 17. And, you know, they're crying when they see stuff like that. They're still crying. And you're just like, oh, geez, you know, how how does that make you want to go on Twitter and say, well, they're making a million dollars? You know, I don't care. Mm. You know, how, what? I like that you said you know, one of the reasons why we do this as historians is because we're secret optimists. And I think that that is very true. And it's because one of the next questions is what kind of gets us there, which is when we say, like, why is this still a thing? And who's benefiting? And what does this tell us about power? And it feels like two steps forward, three steps back a lot of the time. And as much as South America for a long time has been the talent pool that Europe has looked to outside of its own development academies, they have also looked to African academies. And so we have Gerard Akinis to help us understand that. My name is Gerard Akinis. I teach and research sport management and sport in Africa. Football academy started in the 1990s, mostly in French-speaking Africa, Côte d'Ivoire, Mali, Senegal, Cameroon, and in Anglophone Africa, it was essentially Nigeria, Ghana, and South Africa. The intention was to develop youth who were going to play for the local clubs, local leagues, and reinforce their, the quality of the game while providing education to these young players. And the other intention was to be able to provide a valuable professional path in football for these young players. With the success of these early academies, well-structured, well-funded, like ASEC Mimosa Academy in Côte d'Ivoire, many more people embrace the academy uh, system as a business to generate revenue. And we end up with a wide range of type of academies from the well-structured one to the neighborhood academy with limited resources. If we can talk about risk in migration, 
through academies, the academies with limited resources, limited capacity, are the ones who represent the highest risk for young players in Africa because they are targeted by predatory agents, predatory recruiters who are going to try to lure the kids to take them to Europe and try to make money out of them. That's where the risk is when the well-funded and well-structured academies provide a more stable and legal environment for young players who migrate to Europe to have a better uh, organization that's going to take off their interests and not dump them in the European football with nowhere to go when they try to succeed. So who is benefiting from this? You've kind of said, and are there places or are there things that represent, you know, kernels of hope, seeds of hope for more reform reform in the future? Or are there kind of canaries in the minefield about the fact that it's getting worse when we're looking at these systems globally or when we're considering Mm -hmm. how this is unfolding on the women's side or, you know, if it is at all, like looking forward, what do we have to, to grasp? Yeah, I I do think about the women's side and the fact that because women are actually subject to the very same transfer market. And I've long thought to myself, that's pretty fucked up, though the men's game might generate, you know, let's say a trillion dollars a year in the transfer market. The women's might generate about three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, but they're still subject to the same governance structures, which is. Um, not good. And when we think about the growth of the women's game, this is one area where I'm like, you know, can we not can we not replicate this really terrible thing in the women's game, please? So this all seems very intentionally invisible. Um, This is something that's happening that's all around us, right, that we hear in kind of whispers or in, in little narratives here or there, but it's easily flying under the radar because of, A, the way that we don't think a lot about youth sports or we don't think about youth. We especially don't think about brown and black and brown youth. We don't think about marginalized youth in, in the global south. Um, it's very easy to overlook this, but I think, like, the more we overlook these things, especially sport-minded people helps fuel them to continue, right? Like when they can do so shrouded in the shadows. Um, So I appreciate, Brenda, you having this conversation with me and Flamethrowers, you tuning in um, so we can start having it, so we can be louder about this, so that we can have more eyeballs on these systems and we can talk not just about the 0.02% that it quote unquote works for, but the 99.8% who are at some point in these systems um, and often emerging with, with many scars. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. 
Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Coming up on Thursday for Burn It All Down. Jessica talks to Chloe Angel about her new book, Turning Point, how a new generation of dancers is saving ballet from itself. They discuss if ballet is a sport, the role of masculinity in it, and the future of ballet, among many other things. Check it out. When I set out to write this book, I was like, okay, I can't write a book that you know is naive and shocked to find that there's like a dirty, ugly underbelly to this beautiful art form. Because like, well, yeah, the dirty, ugly underbelly is part of the mystique. It's part of the appeal. It's part of that dichotomy. It's part of what fascinates people about ballet. And so I didn't want to write a book that was like, did you know that ballet is secretly fucked? (laughs) Like, well, yeah, it's not that much of a secret. Okay, before we get really burning things. I have a little bit of kindling for the bird pile this week. ESPN, which, you know, has a lot of trouble airing women's sports, apparently has no trouble airing high school football, including a football team that may or may not even exist. ESPN this week on their high school football showcase aired a game featuring IMG Academy playing a school named Bishop Sycamore. At the second quarter, they were already down 30-0, and people started asking, who is this random school from Ohio? Well, um, it's unclear. Let's just say that. They maybe are online chider. Most of the athletes on the team are not actually in high school. A lot of them are junior college players and or former junior college players. They're not high school age. The coach is dubious at best. But here they are on national TV in a showcase game getting blown out. Everything about it is absurd. ESPN is punting the responsibility on this, pun intended, to the marketing group that organizes the Sunday showcase. I mean, there's so much more to this story that I really want you to go dig into because it's literally layers and layers of absurdities. But I literally like can't stop thinking about how hard it is to get women's sports on TV, especially on that station. And when you think about that through this lens, it's just, it makes something that's absurd that much more ridiculous. And that is why it's my kindling to the burn pile this week. Now it's time for the burn pile Uh, I will go first. I've tried to be indifferent, but also just simmering rage at the way, unsurprisingly, especially the Boston sports media has been so clearly trashing Cam Newton and trying to pull for Mac Jones to start at quarterback for the New England Patriots. The Patriots fans who are not the black ones, um, are also very clearly gleefully cheering for Mac. But Scott Zolak, former Patriots quarterback, now Boston media personality, really just, I wouldn't even call it a dog whistle. I would call it like a foghorn or something. 
when in his kind of daily praise of Mac and demonishment of Cam Newton asserted that maybe Cam is so distracted that what the Patriots really need to do is ban rap music because he's dancing to rap music (laughs) in practice and he's distracted and not focusing but that's just quote unquote what he does it's just like (laughs) like what he and then you know in the same breath like mac jones is here to work and everything's attention to to detail but that's not cam's style and you know da 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 but like it's ridiculous it's just we know it's ridiculous right first of all everybody you know who listened to rap music in the patriots facility tom fucking brady listened to rap music in the patriots facility did you have a problem then scott <laughs> and also what the fuck do you know about what it takes to be a quarterback <laughs> anyways let me not go there but the point is that like this is just ridiculous he's a professional quarterback he has focus he knows details like you're not gonna be at this point and not pay attention to details if in between throws you are reacting to your teammates or to music okay if he was listening to country would you feel better if he was listening to Aerosmith, would that be acceptable? No, it wouldn't, because it's a black man doing anything. That's what you're mad about. But the fact to even now get on Beyonce's internet in the year 2021, in the middle of a damn panini, to say rap music is the distraction is like, hello, is this 1992? What 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 is even happening here? <sighs> It's so predictable. It's almost comical in how predictable it is. Um, But it's also racist, so burn it all down. Burn. That's dumb. It's so dumb. (laughs) dumb. Ren, what are you torching this week? I am torching the reduction of the penalty on the Mexican national men's team to play two of the World Cup qualifiers behind closed doors, as we say, or with no fans which was a punishment for the ongoing pee chant, which is a homophobic slur that Mexican fans chant every time the opposing goalkeeper touches the ball. And so FIFA had given them a penalty of two games. They had appealed several times. The Mexican Federation had questioned if maybe the women could serve the penalty And in the end, FIFA came back and said, oh, fine, you can just play one of the games behind closed doors. It is infuriating. Burn It All Down has been covering this since episode eight. That's 207 episodes and four years ago. And it is just, it's, I'm so mad. I it's such garbage and it's just it's violent and it's stupid and we talked about chance on the top of the show so I'm just gonna circle back it's not creative it's not interesting it's a curse on the men's national team I I I don't know what to say the fact that both of the incidents occurred in the United States should tell you something and that's not that it's not to dismiss 
the importance of it, but it is important that it happens in the U.S. because you should know how pervasive it is, how transnational it is, how it's 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 seeped into the game and really sullied the minds of people that are willing to say, oh, no, you gringos are coming in and telling us um, what's homophobic. No, no, no. Activists in Mexico who have been working tirelessly to get rid of the discrimination and the violence towards the LGBTQ community in Mexico have told you again and again and again that it's violent, that it's discriminatory, that there shouldn't be any place for it in football. I want to burn the fact that they reduced the chant. I want to burn the fact that the Federation is so sinvergüenza, so without shame that they would even appeal this is just maddening. And I want to burn it all down. I want to burn, burn, burn that. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to highlight some torchbearers of the week. I'll start. Uh, I want to shout out Avani Lakara, who is India's first woman to win a Paralympic gold medal. She won it in uh, shooting with a score of 249.6 points in the final event which sets a Paralympic record and ties the world record. So congrats to you, Avani. Brenda, who you got? Literal flamethrower. Dinesh Priyantha Harath wrote history for Sri Lanka. The 32-year-old javelin thrower came up with his best throw of 67.79 meters to set a new world record in the men's F46 category and clinched the country's maiden gold in the Paralympics on Monday. The temperature reached a crazy 33 degrees celsius i also want to take a quick second to shout out tatiana mcfadden which i'm sure we will shout out more as the paralympics continue but tatiana won the 5000 meter t54 bronze at the paralympic game which was her 18th yes 1818th paralympic medal she is now a six-time paralympian 18-time Paralympic medalist, 20-time world medalist. It's just wild. And what's wild, even more wild about it, is that she has five more events to potentially medal in. Um, So, yes, Tatiana McFadden, shout out to you. Brenda. Chinese teammates Xu Mai Tan and Jing Bian became the first ever women's saber Paralympic champions on August 25th as China swept all four gold medals on offer in the opening day of wheelchair fencing. And now, can I get a drum roll, please? For your winner by a majority decision, and now holding the WBA IBO Super Lightweight Championship of the World from Philadelphia, PA, And our torchbearer of the week goes to Kaylee Reese, who defended the World Boxing Association Junior Welterweight title, was the first Indigenous woman to earn this title, and just last week defended it with a majority victory over Diana Prozac. Reese is a member of the Sakonic Wapanog tribe, as well as Cherokee, Nimwuk, and Cape Verdean. Reese is also two-spirit and took to the ring uh, and competed in a custom design ring outfit with the insignia of three organizations, Every Child Matters, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, and the Red Spirits Women's Motorcycle Riding Club that dedicated and are fighting for causes that Kaylee wants to bring awareness to. Kaylee used her platform after winning the match to say, those of you who know I'm wearing orange for a reason, 
all of our children have now been discovered in unmarked mass graves. Over 5,000 children were stolen from us. I fight not just for these, but for our children, our rights, missing and murdered Indigenous women, and Stop Line 3. Stop Line 3 is an oil pipeline um, that would pass through the territory of Indigenous group in uh, Alberta and Wisconsin. So we just wanted to big up Kaylee, for your accomplishments, for your championships, and for using your platform to speak up and represent multiple causes and and multiple battles that Indigenous people are fighting across borders. Um, and we are all here at Burn It All Down in awe and in celebration of you and standing behind you as you continue to shine. So congratulations, Kaylee Reese. You are our torchbearer of the week. For more information on Kaylee and to read more about Kaylee's story, please check out Corey Erdman's piece on CBC and also catch her performance as a boxer in Catch the Fair One, which premiered at Tribeca Film earlier this year. All right. So what's good in your world, Brenda? The fair. Brenda never knows what's good in her world. The fair. I know. Well, you know what? The thing is, I have an uppy personality, actually. And so <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like it from this segment of the show. Maybe it's just there's so many good things going on. So this is the this is the way it works for me. There's a county fair. It's the Duchess County Fair. I went with the kids. I love the rides. Was I a little concerned it was a super spreader event? Yes. Um, and so there are ways in which all my what's good feels a little fraught right now because I don't know the right decisions, but I had tons of fun with my eight-year-old daughter spinning around and, um, you know, feeling sick and like she just discovered what losing her stomach really is again, you know, because you, you forget it, you're a kid, you forget it every time. I did fly around the fair on a pink elephant. It was very exciting. Um, I love a county fair. I really, really do. And no one made me play the dumb games that are rigged, which I know are fun for some people, but I just find sad. So that was really awesome. There's a lot of animals at the fair here in New York. And so, yeah, so that was really, really fun. And I hate to say this, but school starting on September 8th is going to be hopefully a finally, finally, again, a little fraught, but I'm psyched about it. And above all, and this is my great huge amount of gratitude to Hofstra University. I am beginning sabbatical and I'm not doing syllabi and it feels very sabbatically. So there's a lot. There's a lot of good things. Woo-woo! Sabbatical! Woo-hoo. Book writing. We need a sabbatical We change. do! That's such a good idea. Write that book. do 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 Anywho, um, yeah. Well, school is right up there on my list. My kids started school here in Austin about 10 days ago. Um, so far so good. Um, Samari school is mostly vaccinated cause they're older, um, except for the poor sixth graders, but seventh and eighth grade's good. Um, and the little ones are in mass, but they're in person. Um, and they're out of my house. So that's, what's good for me. And it was Zachary's birthday. Zachary turned five. Um, my Virgo Leo Cusper, he is headstrong and determined and creative, and he's just so sweet and also a bit terrifying. 
not to lie. Um, and this was the year he, like, I mean, the kid, half his birthdays basically have been pandemic birthdays. So, and it's like right at the beginning of the year anyways, it's kind of an awkward birthday time when you're a kid because you like don't really have friends yet in your class, whatever. So they've always been very low key for him. But this was the year that he like really got the concept of birthday, but like not in the, not in a cute way. Not like, oh, this is great. But like telling his brother and sister, like, it's my birthday. I make the rules. So uh, he would just like tell people like, this is, this is my birthday list. And it wasn't like a, I would please like this. It's like, this is my expectations. Meet them. Um, And it was so cute. It was just great to see him like center himself. (laughs) This is him singing happy birthday to himself because again, he doesn't need people um, at all. So... (laughs) And he's five. Aww. The baby is five. I don't know how that happened, but he's a whole hand. Um, and that is that is absolutely my what's good. What we're watching this week, well, we're getting to that time in the sporting calendar where there's a lot of things happening concurrently. So, of course, the Paralympic Games are ongoing. Lots of athletics and swimming events happening this week, as well as um, the quarterfinals of wheelchair basketball, uh, of table tennis, um, and um, sitting volleyball. Please check those out. Uh, The U.S. Open is starting. Many people have pulled out. Naomi Osaka will be playing, um, however, among other people. Um, in addition to that, you have uh, the Premier League and La Liga and, and global football that we were talking about for much of today's episode is rocking and rolling in on to match week four now. World Cup qualifiers for the men are starting. AU Athletes Unlimited softball is continuing. Baseball is rocking and rolling into the postseason Yes, there's a lot of sports on, uh, so pick your favorite ones, settle in, watch it, uh, a lot of events coming up. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wired Podcast Network. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show links, transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find our link to our fire merch at our bonfire store. Just a reminder, partial proceeds go to our partner organizations. We've just donated money to Athlete Ally, to the Sports Task Force of the Asian American Journalists Association, and to our friends over at the Black Women's Players Collective. Um, and thank you to our patrons. Your support continues to mean the world to us. If you want to be a donor to our show and get extra content, uh, fireside chat invites, watch parties, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. And in the words of my fellow co-host today, Brenda Elsie, burn on, not out.